Good morning. I heard it was St. Patrick's Day. Hope you all doing well. So who was St. Patrick? First of all, he wasn't even Irish. Did you know that? Yes, you, got, you, got, you all knew that. You knew that already. So he, this guy, uh, he's living in England. His father was a deacon in the church, and his grandfather was a pastor, and St. Patrick himself was a rebel. Wasn't interested in any of that. At the age of 16, he gets captured by a group of Irish raiders, and in the story it says that he is sold to a guy who is a ruthless warrior pig farmer a ruthless warrior pig farmer. And he is there enslaved for six years amongst this guy. Terrible conditions, as you can imagine, it's tough. And in the midst of that, this rebel actually starts, can you believe it? He starts praying. And he really turns his life over to Christ. He just has a major change in his life and very interested in in faith. He has a very vivid dream. And in this dream, he believes that God is telling him to escape and to go to the coast and there'll be a boat there headed to France. So shortly after that, he does escape. He walks 200 miles. He gets to the coast and lo and behold, you know what? There's a boat there and it's headed to France. Gets on the boat, goes over to France. By the time they get there, they were out of food and they were completely starving to death. And they said, hey, we're starving to death. Somebody do something. So what does St. Patrick do? He starts praying. And when he prayed, do you know what showed up? A herd of pigs of all things. He just left the pig farmer and a herd of pigs comes running in and so they had a huge feast. He makes his way back to England and begins to study for the ministry and then one night he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees, similar to a story that's in the Bible about Paul who writes the letter to the Romans that we're studying here, where Paul sees his vision of a man saying, please come to Macedonia. Well, St. Patrick has a vision of a man, an Irish gentleman, probably speaking in the Irish dialect, says, please come to Ireland and share with us the story of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, why would he want to do that? Why would he want to go to Ireland? These people enslaved him. He's got nothing but bad memories of Ireland. But he moves beyond himself and he goes there and he shares the story of Christ. He starts over 700 churches in Ireland, over 700. It's a pretty big number ordains more than 1,000 pastors and begins an anti-slavery movement in Ireland. Now, how did he do all this? He did it because he wasn't interested so much in his will being done, but in the Father's will being done. And in this story today, in this passage today of Romans, it's a compare and contrast clearly between Adam and Jesus, right? Between what Adam did and what Jesus Christ did. Now, hero. The title of this message is Hero. Who's been a hero in your life? And can you think for a second, what are the qualities of somebody who's a hero? What are they like? What, what things do they all have in common, somebody who is a hero? I, I want you to think for a second about like Superman and Wonder Woman. What, what would they do? They're proactive. They act. You don't see, you know, pictures or you don't see a movie about Superman, Wonder Woman sitting on a sofa somewhere, smoking a cigarette, talking about what they're going to do for themselves. That would totally disrupt the entire story, wouldn't it? What you see instead out of people who are heroes are people who act. They're proactive. They act. They don't sit back. And they're proactive for what? For somebody else's benefit. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what is told in this story. Adam, on the contrast to all that, acted on his own behalf. Jesus acts on other people's behalf. And that's where the story just 
hits each other. This is what we're talking about today. How do superheroes act and what do they act for? You know, the most popular thing, and this was, this was looked at by the former uh, president of Princeton Theological Seminary. He was very interested. What is the number one emotion that we see in the biographies of the life of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Like, what emotion did he display the most? And you know what he found out? This is most commonly said about Jesus and his emotion is that he was moved by compassion. Compassion is for somebody else, and it's proactive. He was moved by compassion for other people. Jesus Christ would never bend. He would not be broken. He could not be bought. He was not silenced. He would speak up against injustice and in cruelty no matter who was doing it. Whether it was somebody who was on his side, a friend or an ally in some sort or fashion, or somebody who was an enemy, it did not matter. He would not be silenced. He would not stop and make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ was put to death because he was threatening people who were in power, both the Romans and the Jewish leaders. They wanted to maintain their self-power. They wanted to maintain their own comfort. And Jesus Christ was speaking out against that, and that was in jeopardy, and so they killed him for it because Jesus would not stop being other-focused. He was beyond himself, much like St. Patrick. Well, let's jump into this today. We've covered a lot of ground in this series. We're 10 weeks in. I said this a few weeks ago. The famous pastor in Philadelphia, uh, Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse, he preached on the book of Romans for more than 10 years. 10 years. We've only been 10 weeks into this. He preached for 10 years. He took about a verse at a time and did a whole sermon about that, moving his way through. We've covered a lot of ground because we've said this a few weeks ago. The most important, according to scholars, the most important, important paragraph in the Bible is in Romans. The most important doctrine is in Romans. And today, the most important text about original sin is what we are covering today, Romans 5.12. Here it is. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin, and in this same way, death came to all people because all sinned. What, all sinned? All people sinned? How can that be possible? When talking about original sin, some people say, you can't blame me for what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But what's being described here is that they sinned in the garden, and all people sinned in a similar way, in a very similar way to them. And because of that, death is spreading. So Jesus Christ is spreading life, the reign of life, and Adam is the spread of death, the reign of death. Original sin, what is it? I want to break it down into just two categories, just two major categories. There's others, but just if I can just do two major ones. One way to view original sin is this. Adam was a really bad example. He was a very bad example to us and that at any time... We all could say, you know what, I'm tired with the example that Adam gave. I can stop sinning. I have the power in myself to say, sin no more, and I can completely stop it. That's one view of original sin. He set a bad example, and any of us at any time can stop in our own power and strength. That might appeal to Western individualists like ourselves, rugged individualists. That's one view of it. Here's another view of it. The other view is that our very nature deep within us, one of the best scholars on the book of Romans says, when it says we have all sinned in Adam, it's saying we have all sinned in a similar way, similar way, that original sin is one sin, which we'll point out in just a few moments in a big way. It's one sin, and we all exactly sin in the exact same way that Adam did this. And we'll get into it in a moment, what is that exact way? And because of that, deep in the core of our being is this nature that is led to sin in a similar way that Adam is. And I know sin is not something we love to talk about. So let's uh, talk about apples for a second. Anybody like apples? 
Apples, apple a day, keep the doctor away. Have you ever seen the like the little uh, hole, the worm hole in the apple or worm? You seen that, anybody ever? I, you know, when I see that, I always cut it open to see if the worm is still in there. And you know, uh, bad news is they leave stuff behind when they eat. I uh, don't want to get into that too much, but they leave stuff behind when they eat. The worms do. I always thought the worm was like eating their way inside the apple. It's not the case. The female uh, fruit fly actually, before the apple is full grown like this, lays the eggs and the apple grows up around the eggs. And so when you see the hole, actually the worm is eating their way out. They're actually at the core of it. They're already inside of it. The problem's not outside. The problem's on the inside and they're eating their way outside. Now that's a good way to put original sin in this other view. Is the problem on the inside or is the problem on the outside? Is it because Adam set a bad example or is it because my very nature is to sin? Now, the Bible indicates that even from our time of our birth, from the time of our birth, and it's hard to imagine that a wonderful, cute, cuddly little baby could actually have the nature to be sinning, right? Who teaches those little babies to say, mine, mine? I mean, what parents here are walking around the house setting that example for your kids. Would you please stop it? Mine. Where did, where did my kids learn to do that? I guess when I was gone from the house, Krista must have been running around the house saying mine all the time. How did, how did they learn that so quickly? So is it on the outside or is it on the inside? And so what the Bible indicates is that our very nature, our very nature from the inside, there is a core. There's a core problem to us. Stay right there, Apple. There's a core problem that we have and that we sin in the exact same. So we're not being blamed for Adam's sin. We're sinning in the same way, all of us, because we have this core problem. That's what I believe the Bible is saying. Verse number 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law. Now, that's really interesting. Remember, he's talking to a group of people. They love the Bible. They love of the law. They are trying their best to 100% fulfill every single rule and command that is in the Bible. And he says, yeah, but to be sure that sin is in the world even before the law. How is that possible that sin could be in the world before the law? How could it be possible? So they're in a garden, right? Remember, they're in, they're in a garden and the, the, the command is stay, wait, don't, don't eat the tree. Don't eat the tree. And after they did eat the tree and sin enters the world and death expounds all over the place, right? This is the, the reign of death. It's spreading everywhere. That now they have to leave the garden. So they can't they can't even get to the tree anymore. And there isn't a law, like for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So how could sin be spreading? How could death be spreading? Because there's no law to break. And you can't even get to the tree where there is the one law. Unless it is that we all, by our very nature, are committing an original sin. And everybody, what we're told over and over again, was doing what was right in their own eyes. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. That's hundreds of years, everybody. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, original sin. There's a reign of death, there's a reign of life, and it is spreading and it is growing. There's a compare and contrast. You have Adam, he's in a garden. That's how the entire Bible starts. You have Adam, he is in a garden, and God says, basically, obey me about this tree. Fast forward a couple thousand years, you have Jesus Christ on Thursday night, the night before, the night that he was betrayed, and he's in a garden of all places. And he says, Father, is there any way that I can get out of this cross? And the cross, everybody, I know we look at nice, neat crosses, but crosses were trees. <laughs> Jesus was nailed to a tree. And the Father says, Obey me about the tree. And Jesus says, 
In contrast to Adam, he says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Adam over here in the best possible conditions in paradise says, my will be done, not thy will. Jesus over here in the worst possible conditions says, thy will be done, not my will be done. And there is original sin, the independence from God. I will do my own thing. I'm either going to get beyond myself and think about other people, or I'm going to be like Adam, and I'm going to say, I don't care really what this does for you. I'm going to do what's good, what's good just for me. And it's a compare and contrast between the two. Psychologists tell us this about us, that all people have a self-serving bias. We all have a self-serving bias. That is the original sin that runs deep in every single one of us. Marriage, friendships, relationships. I've now been married a bunch of years. I have read dozens and dozens in my library. I have dozens and dozens of marriage books and relationship books. I feel, this is going to sound extraordinarily arrogant, but I feel at this point in my life, I can or I can tell you how to, no matter what you're going through, how to have a great relationship or how to have a great marriage. And that sounds, that sounds really arrogant. But I have crammed my head full of information, tons of it. I've been to conferences, tons of conferences. I've done lots of counseling of couples or people people having relationship problems. I feel like I have the information. So why is my marriage challenged if I have all the information? Because I don't have the motivation. Information's not my problem anymore. Motivation is my problem. I now know what to do, so why don't I do it? What is standing in the way? There's one big thing standing in the way. Psychologists would say it's a self-serving bias. There's a female voice in my house that every now and then says it in a much more direct way. You're a selfish jerk. How come I can't shake that? What is it at the core of my being? There are times that I say stuff and like as the words are forming, I'm not, I know I shouldn't say them, but I'm going to say them anyway. There are things that I know I shouldn't do. I do it anyway. What is that at the core of my being that I just, this is what is being talked about here. I have a motivation problem, not an information problem. Why do we do that? death? So there's a lot of talk about death here. Death is separation. The Bible says sin is separation. Death is separation. Sin and death are joined at the hip. So what, what Adam does is he, he brings destruction because of his self-serving, right? For, he couldn't get beyond himself, and it just causes death. So you, Genesis 3, there's the, there's the self-serving. By the time you get to the very next chapter, Genesis 4, you have the first murder. And by Genesis 5, it's a parade of this person died, this person died, this person died, this person died. Separation, separation, separation. And it is true. Every time I make a good decision, a good decision in my relationships or in my marriage, life happens. And when I make a bad decision, at least a portion of death happens. You know what I'm talking about? That happens. Sin and death is separation. It brings the end of something. I was drinking a juice can recently. I, was, I held it up to look at the date because I want to know when it expired. And right there on the side, it says, shake well, separation is natural. We live in a world now where separation is natural. Right? Our bodies, we don't like to think about this, but our bodies physically is are falling apart. It's separating. And we're falling apart. Our relationships fall apart. Unless I work at my relationships with my wife or my friends, we tend to separate. We pull apart. Same thing happens with our relationship with God. Everything. This planet is falling apart. Things fall because separation now becomes natural. Is there anything that we can do to stem that tide? We're told in scripture that God put eternity on our hearts. 
that we have a desire for life. We have a desire for eternity. We can't get away from, even though death surrounds us, we can't get away. And so a lot of times what we try to do is try to put a good face on death. We change things from like, it's the graveyard to it's a cemetery. Anything we can do to make something better, right? We have things called life insurance. Actually, it's death insurance, right? But we like to call it what? We choose life insurance. I have a cereal, a cereal in my cupboard right now called life. I don't wake up every morning and have a bowl of death. I have a bowl of life. Because <laughs> it's better. I like, I like that more. I was reading, I, I was, I was reading this uh, uh, person who is in charge of this huge company that what they do is they actually, when, when somebody dies, they make the body look good. And they were saying, they were bemoaning the fact that too many people are choosing cremation. And they were saying, if we could just make the bodies look better, people would not opt for that. They would choose for people to see their loved one lying there if we could just make the body look better. And then they cited a survey. And the survey said this, that 75% of families, when they look at their loved one, you know, in the open casket, when they look at their loved one, they say, I am disappointed. I am disappointed with the way they look. Now, what does that make you think about? That means that 25% of the people out there look at their loved one and say, I really like what death has done for your looks. This is, you should have died a long time ago. 25% is like, this is great. Joe, death has really improved your looks. All right. Separation is natural. All right, here, let's keep reading. The judgment followed one sin, brought condemnation. The gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned, and through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? The word one is used in these few verses 12 times. Big deal. Over and over again. That's why we call it, this is the passage for original sin. One. There's one. Not many. It's one. Over and over. There's been one sin that separates us. Sometimes I've been known to say up here that, you know, we should re repent of our sins. We should. We should repent, plural, of our sins. Good thing. We should need to say our sorry. That kind of, right? All those things. But there's only one thing standing in our way of salvation. There's, there's only one thing, and it's the original sin. One thing. This is what Paul is pointing out so clearly. Should I repent of my sin? Should I make things right? Should, I should do it every day. For me, I have to do it almost every hour. It's constant. It's a constant thing. But what stands in my way of salvation, what stands in my way from the reign of life is one thing he's saying. There's one trespass, and that is the self-serving bias. We're doing this cool thing amongst the staff right now. It's a temperament study. There's four major temperaments. There's four temperaments in life, and we're talking about how those temperaments communicate and how different Temperaments receive the communication and it gives us the, the, the weaknesses and it gives us the strengths of the temperaments. The four temperaments have one common weakness. Do you want to guess what it is? Selfishness. Universal amongst people. Of all of our weaknesses, we have one common weakness according to studies, and that is selfishness. Heroes like to move beyond themselves. Jesus Christ did that. Anybody who's been a hero in your life, they acted, 
They moved. They were proactive. They did something. They acted. They didn't sit back. They acted and they did it for you. They did it for you, not for themselves. And that is what makes them a hero. Adam is my will be done and Jesus is thy will be done. And that's what makes Jesus a hero because he did it at every decision point his entire life. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. And then have you ever seen Romans 5.20 before? What in the world does that mean? The law was brought. Now, Paul's writing to a group of people who they love the Bible. They had memorized the Bible, right? Paul is a person, I've said this many times himself, he had memorized the first five books of the Bible, It's a lot. So he loves the Bible. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. There's a basic principle in the Bible, and the more you know, the more you're responsible for. Adam had information. He had knowledge, and he was totally irresponsible for it. God gave him information, that one tree, don't eat from that tree, stay away from it. He was irresponsible to that knowledge. The more we know, the more we're responsible for. And so what, we're do, what happens here is we're introduced then, as the, as the law comes in in Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years after Adam and Eve, and now we have all this information, but what does that make us want to do? We take one of two paths. Over and over again, we take this path, and, and the story that's in the Bible is constant about this prodigal son story. You have the younger rule-breaking younger brother, and you had the rule-keeping older brother. This contrast between the two. You've got, now you have, this, you have this law, right? And some people, once you have a law, you put the line down in the sand and say, whatever you do, don't cross it. And you're like, oh, good, I'm going to cross it every day, right? That's the younger brother's like, I love breaking it. I mean, put lines down all over the place. I find great joy in breaking it, okay? But then you have the older brother. like, okay, line. I mean, put lines all around me. I'll stand like a soldier. But his issue was his own pride. I'm going to do this. So when the younger brother comes back in that story in Luke 15, what does the older brother point to? Himself. He talks about me and I and I did this. His focus is not on his father. His focus is not beyond himself. It's him. And both of them are completely immersed in original sin. Because original sin is independence. And the word independence means self-sufficiency. The younger brother was self-sufficient. The older brother was self-sufficient. He didn't need God. Any Led Zeppelin fans? Right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Nobody wanted to admit to it in the first service. It's very strange. (laughs) Stairway to heaven stairway to heaven. The younger brother's like, I don't care about it. I don't need a stairway to heaven. Over here, you got the Led Zeppelin fan. The older brother's like, if I need a stairway, I'll do what? What does she say over and over? She's buying it. Hey, God, if I need to be saved, I will just buy my own stairway. I don't need your help. I'll buy it. And so either side, either side is completely self-sufficient on their own and independent. One is a rule breaker. One is a rule keeper, right? But both are immersed in original sin. Okay, last couple verses. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's what we need because we are responsible for all, all of the law that we know. So the problem is for them, and the problem is for us sitting in here, right, that it, maybe this is your first time in church ever, but now you hear a little bit of it, you hear a little bit, and you're then responsible for it, responsible for that. But you need grace 
because you can't keep all of it. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I must obey, must obey all of the law. I can't obey all of the law. And now we're stuck in between. And this is why Jesus Christ is called a savior, not a helper. We don't need a coach. We don't need a role model, right? We don't need an encourager. We need a savior, a rescuer. That's why Jesus Christ is called our rescuer because we know we're caught in between. I'm responsible for all of it. I can't fulfill all of it. I need somebody to rescue me. And it makes us point our eyes on Christ. Christ then becomes everything and is deeply, deeply humbling to the very core of our being. Pastor Derek has talked about this a number of months ago. Uh, he, he loves the fact that, and for those of you who know Pastor Derek, he's British. And uh, I enjoyed making fun of him a lot, particularly around July the 4th. It was a very special time of year for me around the office because I just, I just rub it in and he would be moping around the office and I would you know, say all kinds of stuff like you're a loser and things like that. <laughs> You know, it was, it, was, it was great. And then my daughter bought me one of those DNA tests, which apparently I should have never taken because then I can be tracked for all kinds of crimes that I never committed. But that's another story. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. So I took it. And I, my parents and grandparents always said, well, you're Dutch. We're Dutch. We're Dutch. We're from the Netherlands. We're Dutch. And it turns out basically that I'm completely British. Now, I had great fun when I looked down on the British until I found out I was one. And the reality is, is, is I'm just as much a sinner as anybody else. And that's deeply humbling. And so I, as much as anybody else, have to look to Christ because he is the hero, always 100% of the time, selfless. He's always acting, moved by compassion on my behalf. Look at this quote I have here. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's at the very core of our being. It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. It's on the inside. We can't look to ourselves. If the problem was just a bad example from Adam, then, then the whole point that we should do as a people would be to look to ourselves to get rid of ourselves. And that logic really doesn't make sense, does it? I can't really look to myself to get rid of myself. I have to look to somebody else. I have to look to Jesus Christ. How about this college admissions scandal going on? No, oh, you've been following that news, the college admissions scandal? Right? Somebody called me the other day and says, you know what? It was quite interesting that one of the celebrities caught in this was doing a media piece for somebody or on social media or so whatever. I can't really, but they said that they were like saying how much they couldn't stand people who lied. Like lying is terrible. Nobody should lie. Hate liars. <laughs> and then look what they did. So we have this self-serving bias. We have this blindness to ourselves. We're just the same as everybody else. So we should be very careful. As the Bible says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So we should know that we're just like everybody else. Actually, this college admission scandal has made me feel quite good because now I know why I didn't get in Harvard or Yale. So <laughs> they didn't laugh about that in the first service. 
So we have to embrace the Savior. And when we embrace the Savior, when we embrace the gospel here, there's something that happens. There's the reign of death. There's a reign of life, right? And the reign of life is that for some reason we are moved. We are compelled that we want to share the story of Jesus Christ. We just do. That's one of the ways that you'll know that you've been truly touched by the gospel of Christ. And I know that people share the story sometimes in ways that are offensive to you, but I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about from a pure way, from a joyful way. I, where you're not condescending people or being obnoxious to people, but you just can't stand it. You in your own way, your own style, your own way, you just want to share the story. And that's one of the ways that you know that you've been touched because you want to spread life. You don't want to spread death. You want to spread life to other people. And that becomes very important to you. You have a new nature. This series we're talking about, I'm out to change my world, right? The world ain't going to change by itself. Christ says he's leaving it up to the disciples. He's leaving it up to his followers to spread life, to keep their eyes fixed on him, as it says, and to spread life to other people. And so there was a book written, early 70s, well, a young woman, kind of a hippie-ish young woman, right, in her teens or early 20s. Her life was radically changed by the story of Jesus Christ, and she wrote this book, I'm Out to Change My World, by Ann Kimmel. And my wife, Krista, she read that book, and she just, she just loved that book. And everywhere Anne went, she just, whether she was at a gas station or she was in a taxi cab or on a plane, she just had to tell people about the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. She didn't get into the rules, but she really got into God's abundant grace and mercy and his story and how much he loves us. And man, she just, she changed so many people's lives. And we are compelled to do the same thing. We want to share that story. We want people to know that Christ is for them, not against them. And that's a misunderstanding by a lot of people. They think, well, Christ is against me. Do people know or people around you? And so you just have this desire to share that. And you also have the desire to do many practical things, like St. Patrick, to move beyond yourself to do things that wouldn't be normal. Why in the world would he want to go to the people who enslaved him? And yet he went and shared the love of Jesus Christ within the story of Christ with the very people who enslaved him for six long, hard, terrible years because he moved beyond himself. So when the gospel has touched you, I know we pray for our friends, but you'll be moved to even pray for your enemies and maybe even serve them. To love your enemies, to forgive your enemies, as Jesus talks about. You'll bite your tongue sometimes. And maybe if you've been touched by the gospel, you'll find yourself biting your tongue more and more and more. You'll ask for forgiveness. You'll change your attitude. The Bible says we should have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. We'll say we're sorry. We'll look to serve. We'll look to share. We will listen to understand, not listen ready to respond and defend. Man, has that tripped me up so many times in my relationships, particularly with Krista. I will listen, and the whole time I'm just calculating. Okay, man, as soon as my time comes, I'm just ready. I'm not listening to understand I can't move beyond myself. I can't move beyond myself. But when I do move beyond myself, when my eyes are fixed on Christ and I do move beyond, I listen to her to understand, not to defend or have a frontal assault on her. It's a big difference. We think about our words and our actions and how they affect others. When we're in positions of power, I have to ask myself, how do I use my position of power for other people? and not in selfish ways. So it's very, very practical. When I've experienced the power of the gospel, I want to share that story in many, many practical ways, including some by serving others or speaking to others. But there's multiple ways that we do that. But we want to spread life. We move, by our, we, we move beyond ourselves because the world is not going to change itself. Heroes, everybody, are proactive. And I'd like to just take a quick time out and say something about Grace Community Church. For all those watching on Grace Live and those in this room, I just want to say something real quick. I meet people 
uh, all the time, this happens to me all the time, okay, who come to grace. They hate church. Uh, they've been hurt by church. They've been confused by church. Church. They're atheists. They're agnostics. And they come to church. And a larger than normal number. And a larger than normal number. The average non-church-going person, self-classified non-church-going person in the average church in the United States of America is 5%. We're close to 40%. So eight times the national average, doesn't make us special, but it does make us slightly statistically unique. Eight times the national average, we have that. And why do you think people who are confused by church, hate church, don't want anything to do with church, that are atheists, sometimes very, very proactive in that way or agnostic, why in the world would they choose to come to Grace Community Church? Because they hear we're a church for people who don't go to church. And they say, ah, thank you so much for creating a place for me. You know, one of the greatest things I ever heard, somebody who was a non-churchgoer came to Grace. And we got together with them. And they said, well, I heard in Washington, D.C., Grace was the place to come if you just wanted to explore Christianity. If you wanted to come in a a non-condescending, non-judgmental environment that you could explore and hear and think about what, what, who is Christ, the most influential person that ever has been on the face of the earth. And that's all the good stuff. And that's, I just want to applaud you because, because you are actively, and especially those of you who serve on any of our teams, and especially those of you who served on our setup team last week when you lost an extra hour of sleep, right? <laughs> that you come in and you make this happen beyond yourself. Because one of the saddest things that I hear about is I hear from church people, I hear church people are invited to come to Grace. Well, who are you? We're well, church people going to church. I would never go to that church. I would never go to Grace. Why? Because you're a church people going to church, and that's not for me. I want to go to a church that's about who? Me. I know somebody that left, their whole family left is, you know, I've got to go to a church that's about me. I don't want to go to churches about others. It goes against the very heart of Jesus Christ, the very heart of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to bring this up because you guys are doing it. And that is amazing that that's in your heart. And I just applaud you for that, that you come in here and you set up and you support and all the things that this community does. Beyond yourself. That is unheard of. I also want to say something else, and we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, the capital campaign that I announced at the beginning of the year. Capital campaigns for churches, I've heard this forever. It is the most amazing time for spiritual growth. Capital campaign is when a church builds a church for themselves, right? Like, we're going to build a building for us. And I do something that maybe would freak out most churches, but I said, you know what? Let's not build a building for us. Let's build a better community. Let's build a building for somebody else. I was amazed at how many phone calls and emails I got right after that. So many people in this church and said, yes, we are really fired up about that, especially since it's not for us, it's for others. So I want to take a second and say thank you very much for all you guys do. That is awesome of you, and I appreciate it deeply in the core of my being. Now, St. Patrick wrote this piece that I want to read to you, and it's all about focusing on Jesus Christ, right? It can't be about us. It has to be about him. He is the ultimate hero. We're not the hero. This is what he said. This is amazing. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, 
Christ in every ear that hears me. The world isn't going to change itself. We have to look to Christ, not to ourselves, completely. And then moved by Jesus Christ, we go out and we spread life. One last story. So it's basketball. This is my favorite time of year because of March. It's also Easter. <laughs> I will recognize that. But I, I love basketball, and I have played so much basketball in this gym right down here. For those of you who don't know it, there is a massive gym, huge gym right here at TJ. And I played so much basketball as a kid growing up there. It was just unbelievable hours. And there was one Saturday, I think I was a senior in high school, I was up here on a Saturday playing. Um, and I, there was some good ball players that played in that gym. They're professional ball players, and that was just awesome, would come and play in that gym. We're talking back in the 80s. And uh, Division I basketball players would come and play, and it was just, it, it was really fantastic. So there was one Saturday, great competition, and I think my team was on the court for about six hours straight. We won every game. And if you're a basketball player, you know, that's, that's the top of the mountain. You just run the court over and over and over again. It was, it was really great, and we played a lot of great competition that day. But who we had on our team that day was Tommy Amaker, who was starting point guard for Duke. For all of you Duke haters. Uh, and here's the deal. Here's the deal. You know, any of us on that team, the other four guys on that team, we could have tried to put the ball in our hands the most of the time or when the game got down on the line and try to take that shot or make that winning drive. We, we could have done that. And we would have hit it sometimes, we would have missed it sometimes, and we would end up losing some games. But it didn't matter how tight the game was, what we did at the end of every game is whose hands did we put that ball in? Tommy Amaker, because he is a phenomenal player. And it didn't matter what was going on, didn't matter if we needed a defensive stop or we needed a basket, nobody could stop him. He was completely unstoppable. On that court, he was totally perfect. Now, we have a decision to make. We can, as the Bible says, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ because at every turn, at every decision, he is always selfless. He is always moved by compassion, and we can look to him. And when we do look to him and his spirit fills us, his spirit fills us, we will be compelled, because the world isn't going to change itself, to go out and to share his good news to as many people as we possibly can in the way that suits us the most. And so I just want to encourage you at the end of this message. Pray for, look for ways to share the good news of Jesus Christ and allow life to reign, to reverse the tide. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of St. Patrick. Jesus, may you be in us, around us, beneath us, on our right, on our left. When people think about us, would they see you because our eyes are fixed on you, not ourselves? Father, we ask that you would spread life through us in powerful ways. God, you would change this world for your honor and your glory. In your holy name, amen.